0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we check in with Fidelity Director of Global Macro, Yurian Timmer, as he discusses what's moving the markets and provides his insights on what investors should keep top of mind. This week, Yurian discusses the latest regional banking news, the Fed's next move and dives deep into the market cycle. Yurian says the main theme right now is the same theme we've seen in the last six months, and that is the sentiment of, when is the other shoe going to drop? To be blunt, Yurian says people have been very scared about the inversion in the yield curve, all the negative banking headlines, and the sense of caution that the Fed is going to break. So for him, he says the market is in a holding sort of limbo pattern, but he suggests if the market is in limbo, it could lead to different opportunities. The market will be less robust and investors may not experience a huge return as in previous years. But he says this could pave the way for a different pool of opportunities. Also, in his view, the Fed should pause after and if it decides to raise rates again after its next rate meeting in early May. He says a pause would allow the market to figure itself out. Yurin also discusses the performance of small caps as of late and where he stands on the 60-40 and where he sees bonds fitting into portfolio positioning. As per usual, Yurin will be sharing his charts, so please head to at Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on May 1, 2023. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: you have got a lot of investors joining you here right now. What what do you think is sort of top of mind for investors right now?
2: Um, I think the theme really for the last six months at least has been you know, last year we had this big decline. It was all driven by uh, a reset in the cost of capital by the Fed, and um, you know the October lows kind of came and 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 went. And you we obviously we're still holding them, and we're up about probably 20% from there, 15% or so. Um, and I think most people that I talk to, uh, investors or otherwise, are still waiting for that other shoe to drop. I, I think I, you know. So we know that the market climbs a wall of worry speculators you know CTAs hedge funds are about as short as they as they ever get so the the pain trade is clearly higher so yeah this is the commitment of traders data showing a uh, net positioning by what we call large speculators or non-commercials in the futures markets for the S&P 500 e-mini series and so a very large short position so i think Generally, you know, people have been kind of scared to death by the inversion in the yield curve, obviously the bank headlines, um, that that was already a month and a half ago, but obviously that continued last week all the way up to early this morning with the First Republic uh, acquisition by J.P. Morgan, which I think is, is very good news for, for everyone involved. Uh, but I think there's this, been this sense of caution, I, I won't quite say dread, but caution that the Fed's gonna break something, that the curve is inverted, that we're heading into a recession. And uh, so far it's a recession that hasn't arrived, but that everyone seems to have been waiting for. And it doesn't mean that people are out of the market, but I think it's, you know, people haven't really been inclined uh, to get to get very optimistic here. And meanwhile, you know, kind of the market just keeps grinding higher. Although, you know, when you, when you peel the onion away, you can see that the participation or the breath in the market uh, leaves something very big to be desired. So it's not as good as it looks when you just look at the S&P or the NASDAQ.
1: Okay, well, let's get into that, because as you say, it's, you know, it's been sort of a, a staggering rise in equity markets as you take the overall S&P 500, you take a you look at Europe, actually, lots of different examples of that. But when you dig into sort of the market cap story, for instance, it's different.
2: So, so let me give you the, the glass half full and then the glass half empty. So if we go to slide 27,
0: and slide 27 Yurian is referring to is the market cycle earnings growth following bear markets, tweeted on May 2nd.
2: Assuming for a moment that the market, that the U.S. stock market bottomed on October 13th, which so far it looks like it has. And you and I have discussed uh, this many times and my sense has been and continues to be that the lows for the cycle are in, but that we, don't, we do not yet have the ingredients there Create a new bull market so the market's sort of in this holding pattern purgatory limbo whatever you want to call it so uh, if we go to the slide 27 we can see that the current earnings consensus so assuming that the october low was the low so that's the vertical line on this chart we look at what the consensus estimates are for earnings and uh you know big caveat here the consensus is often too constructive and you can see that that black line there that you know kind of on the right hand side of the chart are the estimates uh they're almost comically linear looking it's i mean that is about as straight a line as you can get Uh, and that's typically not how real life works so you can see you can tell that wall street analysts are sort of applying a growth rate and then just extrapolating that into the future so definitely take these numbers with a grain of salt but these are the consensus numbers, so therefore, presumably, this is what's priced into the market. I mean, that's why we look at these things. And what you can see here is that the blue line is the average cycle and the black line is the current cycle. If the, if the black line is correct, then we will only have a modest decline in earnings that will reverse course later this year. And the reason that why that's important is because the market always looks ahead, right? It doesn't It doesn't always discount the future correctly, but it's always looking ahead. So, at inflection points, the market will often bottom several quarters before earnings. So, if we go back to that slide for a second, and then assuming for a moment that the market, that the U.S. stock market bottomed on October 13th, which so far it looks like it has, and you and I have discussed uh, this many times, and my sense has been and continues to be that the lows for the cycle are in, but that we don't we do not yet have the ingredients there to create a new bull market so the market's sort of in this holding pattern purgatory limbo whatever you want to call it so uh, if we go to the slide 27 we can see that the current earnings consensus so assuming that the october low was the low so that's the vertical line on this chart we look at what the consensus estimates are for earnings and uh you know big caveat here the consensus is often too constructive, and you can see that that black line there, that you know, kind of on the right-hand side of the chart, are the estimates. Uh, they're almost comically linear-looking. It's, I mean, that is about that as straight a line you. as you can get, uh, and that's typically not how real life works. So you can see, you can tell that Wall Street analysts are sort of applying a growth rate and then just extrapolating that into the future. So definitely take these numbers with a grain of salt, but. These are the consensus numbers, so therefore, presumably, this is what's priced into the market. I mean, that's why we look at these things. And what you can see here is that the blue line is the average cycle and the black line is the current cycle. If the if the black line is correct, then we will only have a modest decline in earnings that will reverse course later this year. And the reason that why that's important is because the market always looks ahead, right? It doesn't It doesn't always discount the future correctly, but it's always looking ahead. So at inflection points, the market will often bottom several quarters before earnings. So if we go back to that slide for a second, and then um, go, so now go to the next slide, 28, and now instead of earnings, we're gonna show the S&P 500 total return. And so obviously that's assuming the October low was the low, which is an assumption, uh, but you can see a beautiful, Head and shoulders bottom, very okay. symmetrical pattern there and um, and so it would make sense that if the earnings consensus is correct, a modest earnings valley that reverses later this year, then the market is completely justified in rallying now and and when we look at the math historically and two thousand twenty was a, a guide on that uh, the financial crisis in nine as well. But during the phase where earnings are still declining, but price is already bottomed and going up, that by definition is all driven by PE expansion, of course. And the typical PE expansion during that phase is about 40 to 50%. Now, the PE at the bottom of the cycle in October was 15. If we apply 40, 50% times 15, we get a PE of around 21, maybe 22. You multiply that by the expected earnings level for the end of next year, which is around $240 a share, and you get, guess what, you get all-time highs for the S&P. So that's the bullish scenario. And if the earnings numbers are correct, and if the Fed, like, you know, it doesn't even have to pivot so much, but if the Fed is kind of nearly done here, then you can you can see the justification. Um, go. So now go to the next slide, 28,
0: And that slide is the market cycle S&P 500 total return, tweeted on May 2nd. Instead
2: of earnings, we're going to show the S&P 500 total return. And so obviously that's assuming the October low was the low, which is an assumption. Uh, But you can see a beautiful head and shoulders bottom, very symmetrical pattern there. And, um, And so it would make sense that if the earnings consensus is correct, a modest earnings valley, that reverses later this year, then the market is completely justified in rallying now. And, and when we look at the math historically, and 2020 was a, a guide on that, uh, the financial crisis in 09 as well, but during the phase where earnings are still declining, but price is already bottomed and going up, that by definition is all driven by PE expansion, of course, and the typical PE expansion during that phase is about 40 to 50%. Now the PE at the bottom of the cycle in October was 15. If we apply 40, 50% times 15, we get a PE of around 21, maybe 22. You multiply that by the expected earnings level for the end of next year, which is around $240 a share. And you get, guess what? You get all time highs for the S&P. So that's the bullish scenario. And if the earnings numbers are correct, and if the Fed, like you know, it doesn't even have to pivot so much, but if the Fed is kind of nearly done here, then you can you can see the justification for the market rallying here. But there's a big fly in the ointment here, and that's and that fly is the the market breadth or the lack thereof, right? So we know from history, and let's pull up slide
0: 29. And that slide is the market cycle U.S. small caps total return, also tweeted on May 2nd
2: that when you have an early cycle bull market, it tends to be the beta, the, the pro-cyclicals that lead the way because usually that kind of cycle comes out of a recession and then you know, small caps are the most beaten up and, and industrials and other cyclicals are the most beaten up so they rally the strongest. So this chart is the same thing but now I'm showing the Russell 2000, those small caps. Guess what small caps are still at the lows from last October and we're actually making new lows almost on a daily basis and so this is not what you would expect to see in an early cycle bull market because small caps tend to go up more than large caps you know that's that's a very that's very much a missing ingredient here doesn't mean the market can't grind higher but you know it something is missing so to me uh the bullish scenario is is not yet a slam dunk by by any means so so i'm still left sort of sitting on the fence uh concluding that the weight of the evidence is not there yet even though the fed presumably is going to be uh taking a pause after you know the next quarter point rate hike which is now fairly uh you know fairly much uh, expected about 85 percent Priced in, uh, so if I were at the Fed, I would I would pause because the Fed will have done 500 basis points in a year, and that's a lot. And so it would be prudent to wait um, for for to see what the what the impact is. And of course, we saw the right. Bank headlines. I mean, that is that that is like you know a ground zero of what of the Fed's tightening cycle. So uh, I think the Fed should pause. Doesn't I don't know if they will, but but the, the main question is how quickly will it revert back towards the 3% neutral rate, uh, the market is expecting the Fed to go one more quarter point hike and then pivot and go down towards 3%. You can see that if we take the average of all cycles and, and time it to the last hike of the Fed, and again, we don't know if it's the last hike, but let's presume for now that it is, you can see that that black line, which is the forward curve that I just showed in the previous chart, almost perfectly resembles the the, the typical path, which is the Fed usually starts easing pretty soon after it stops tightening, and so so that's kind of the the, the forward curve priced in, and that obviously will be a major driver for the market as well.
1: So things are breaking. <laughs> I mean, I don't. The question is, is is that a big enough implication? I guess, and and you're you're telling us what you think the Fed might want to do potentially uh, to to change things or just let things breathe a bit. But the capital, the liquidity story for the U.S., I mean, is, is it going in any direction other than tightening further from here, whether whether there are more hikes or not? I mean, I, I guess this is sort of the question, like w- what yes. sort of liquidity concerns should we be concerned about? Clearly,
2: some banks have broken. They've gone under. First Republic is a major, you know, is a highly respected bank. I bank with them. So this is kind of a shocking piece of news. But
1: yeah, you, you bank know, with JP
2: Morgan. Yeah, So, you know, when, when I talked to our, our bank, uh, our financial sector leader on the equity side, you know, First Republic, Silicon Valley, Signature, we're sort of the three poster children of they're out over their skis, they're, re- they're relying too much on deposits, and then put too much of that into bonds at very low yields a few years ago. So, I, I do think that maybe these were the last headlines that we're going to see on the banking front. But but you know, it's just a good reminder that the easiest way for the Fed to solve this entire problem with banks is to cut rates, right? Because then right. the banks don't feel the pressure to raise deposit rates to, to compete with money market funds because when they raise the deposit rate, it's gonna impact their net interest margin therefore their earnings, therefore their willingness to lend, and then you get a credit crunch, and that's how you get a recession. And and because it's the smaller regional and community banks that are really feeling the heat on this, it's not J.P. Morgan, um, because it's the smaller banks, that to me is why the small caps, which we just showed earlier, um, are underperforming because that's where the, the the hurt is happening. So so the liquidity environment is being driven right now, I think, by the debt ceiling showdown. And we know that last week uh, Kevin McCarthy, House Republican Speaker, uh, you know, put forward a bill, which of course the Democrats will never agree to. So, but at least it starts this dance that always happens during the debt ceiling. Um, but so the debt ceiling is is in play and uh, here in this chart you see the overall debt level in gray the debt ceiling in black and the orange line is the uh, u.s um one-year cds so that's like a credit protection contract and you can see it's really skyrocketing here so the market is starting to think that this is not a a theoretical problem but it could be an actual problem and i i don't know that it really will affect the economy at large but it, it is definitely having an effect on uh, short-term rates. If you look at the T-bill yields, uh, the the T-bills that expire or mature before the debt ceiling, the the, the zero line, if you will, um, are yielding at a totally different level than the ones after. Treasury has this account at the Fed called the TGA account, the Treasury General Account, and that's money that the Fed has earned on its balance sheet through QE. You can see back in 2020 how big that, that TGA account was in the purple there. Uh, And that money belongs to the treasury, right? So what happened in 2021, if you remember, the Biden administration did this massive stimulus bill, and rather than issue uh, securities to pay for that stimulus, the treasury drew down its TGA account, which you can see, it went from 1.8 trillion to zero, basically, Then then they brought it back up to about a trillion. And then as we got closer to this debt ceiling fiscal cliff, and and the Treasury had to resort to emergency measures, it had to spend down the TGA account. And that spending down is considered a form of liquidity. It's kind of esoteric, but the, the Treasury spending money from the Fed in terms of paying its bill is considered a supply of funds into the economy and therefore a source of liquidity. And so what's happened now in the last couple of weeks is that tax receipts have come in because Here in the U.S., our tax day is in April. I don't know what it is in Canada, but. Same.
1: Okay. So. this week. Yeah.
2: So so clearly, dollars are flowing in again into the TGA account, and that is acting now as a source of a reduction of liquidity. This uh, series called overall liquidity, which is the Fed's balance sheet, minus the TGA account, minus reverse repo, which is also a form of liquidity. And you can see that, in the last couple of days, that line has now hooked down to new lows uh, so it's interesting that from last year, January, which was the peak in the market and the peak in liquidity to October, which was the low in the market, and at least at that point the low in liquidity, you know the correlation was pretty much perfect, so now you have this divergence where the liquidity environment is eroding because the treasury now has you know is building up its t g a account again, and so that would be a net negative. And again, when we look at the small cap chart from earlier, that's where the linkage is. Right, the market is kind of playing its own tune because these fang stocks uh, had really good earnings and are driving the tape higher. Uh, but that's not representative of the overall market.
0: Can we
1: just dig in for a minute? Just just to spend a minute on on first Republic anyway this story of sort of the banking um, collapses that we're seeing which ties into everything you're saying it, the, there seems to be these voices that will say it's it's because of you know dodd-frank it's because of regulations that were put in after the great financial crisis um, what do we need to know about that
2: um, well the the irony is that obviously during the financial crisis the banks were front and center they were overlevered they had a lot of bad debt a lot of uh, real estate, you know, there was a housing bubble uh, and the banks were like levered like 30 or 40 to one, like, you know, crazy numbers. They they were, we can argue they were under-regulated going into the housing bubble in 06, 07, 08. Um, and then as always happens, the pendulum goes from one extreme to the other. And they got, they went from under-regulated to probably a lot of people would say overregulated, um, and, you know, they have su- supplemental leverage ratios, capital ratios, you know, Basel 1, 2, 3 to infinity. The European banks, of course, were part of the same issue. Um, and, you know, the result was that the banks got squeaky clean, right? They're all well capitalized, and, you know, no one's having really any loan loss issues. But the irony is that the one thing that they were never regulated on or stress tested on over was buying the safest bonds in the world at yields that were super low, driven there by the Fed, and now all of a sudden, you know, the deposits go out the door, and of course, you know, with fractional reserve banking, your deposits become the base for a bank to lend, um, and so all these bank failures so far were the result of, you um, Banks spending their deposits and investing them in bonds yielding, you know, two percent, and now those bonds are at four percent, and the deposits now start to leave, and then they have to realize losses, and then that affects their capital ratios, and so this is all, th- this has all been happening over the very over the the single thing that the banks were not regulated or stress tested on. So that that's that's the irony.
1: That's the irony, and that's sort of the one the one piece to remember. A couple of questions coming in here. So one of the questions is going back to. Probably pockets of weakness. Um, how will weakness in commercial real estate uh, factor into the Fed's pivot decision, one way or the other?
2: I think it will, it may not affect the pivot decision, but I think that and the bank headlines and just the overall sense that the economy is slowing. I mean, we got the PMI report today and it ticked up slightly, but it's still in contraction mode. And you know, layoffs are, are rising. I mean, I was just at an event last night and one of my friends got laid off from a company. So you're starting to to, to see that, but it's not, it hasn't risen to recession levels yet, but clearly the Fed, you know, is looking at this. And um, and I think the Fed um, will, you know, will, will maybe, if the market is giving them the free option to raise rates one more time, which the markets are because, again, it's priced in now, um, then I think the Fed will take that option. But one way we look at where the Fed is, is is by comparing it to where inflation is and then the difference is where real rates are. And generally we look at the TIPS break breakeven uh, rates to see where real rates are, but historically it's also been the case that the Fed uh, during previous cycles since the 1970s has always risen uh, raised rates to at least the prevailing headline inflation rate. And what's interesting is that this is the core PCE which was released last week and that is the Fed's favorite uh, inflation gauge. Uh, You can see that that peaked last year in June like the CPI did at 5.42% and is down to 4.6. It's certainly not falling off a cliff but it is improving. And so now if the Fed goes to um, you know five to five and a quarter uh, at its next meeting coming up in a few days, uh, it will be above the prevailing actual headline inflation rate. And usually that has been enough for the Fed to kind of tame the inflation beast. So if I were at the Fed, I would look at that. I would look at just where, where tips break evens are, uh, how much they've done and how quickly they've done it. Um, And I would say, you know what, let let us let the data decide, right? Six months ago it didn't matter what the data were because they had so much catching up to do that they just needed to get to a certain point. Now they're at a certain point and now they can let the data decide. And so as incremental data comes in on layoffs or whatever else, uh, you know, um, uh, on the the banking headlines, uh, they, can, they can afford to wait, and then they can always adjust it later. So uh, to your question, I think that's kind of where the Fed's going to be. And then the next conversation, of course, for the market will be, okay, let's say the Fed is done. How quickly will they return to neutral, which would be presumably around 3%. So we, they will be 2% above neutral after this last hike. Um, and then it's a question of when do they return to that. And I think that will come, come down to the inflation data.
1: Yeah, that's so fascinating. There's a question here, actually, just going back to your breadth uh, comments earlier on. Exactly how many, let me just get this question exactly, worded. In terms of breadth of the market, how many companies specifically are, are moving the S&P? Can you provide a number figure? Uh,
2: yeah, well, let's pull up slide 24, which is not a direct answer, but I have seen data that suggests that just the top five companies uh, are, are accounting for almost all of the, the returns this year. So-
0: And that next slide is microcaps, tweeted by Urien on May 1st.
2: The S&P is up 9% year to date, and this is the Russell microcap index, not that any one of us invests in microcaps, but it's, it's the bottom half of the Russell 2000. Um, right. And um, and this index is down 5% year-to-date, while the S&P is up 9%. That's a very, very large divergence. Again, this is all U.S. equities. These are all market cap driven. And if you look at that top chart, you know, it's not a happy chart. We're, we're making new lows for the cycle, uh, even though the S&P is some, you know, 15% above it. And it's just, you know, I mean, it happens. It's happened before. Uh, uh, but it's, it's just not... For me, it's not a recipe for a robust, new early cycle bull market, which which tends to see much more participation. And if you look at the bottom line, that's relative to the S&P. When you look at the major inflection points, 09, 2011, 2016, 2018, 2020, you see that that purple line kind of hockey sticks up, uh, just to use a Canadian metaphor, um, mm-hmm. and right now it's hockey sticking down, which may not be a metaphor, but you know what I mean. So, may, you know, so it's it's just it's it's an incomplete picture for uh, for a bullish thesis. Like for a bullish thesis, you need to be able to check this off the list, and and, and I can't check it off, and and, and it's actually doing the opposite.
1: It's it's so interesting if if you think that I mean how how close might we be? One of your slides and some of your commentary from your report was talking about sort of two to three quarters. It's okay. We go back to that October number as you've said. Um, I mean we're getting to two to three quarters here, aren't we? I mean this yeah. this is it. So
2: earnings are declining uh, modestly, and and you know obviously we're still in the throes of first quarter earnings season, but we're we're past most of it now so 271 companies have reported but a lot of the important ones have and they have beaten i'm just looking up on my bloomberg here 80 percent have beaten estimates by an average of seven percent so very very strong numbers for the for q1 and so again this shoe that people are expecting to drop um, isn't dropping yet and we see actually if we look at the internals right so this is the earnings chart on the top and then the growth rate in forward earnings in the purple so that's down now down three percent so we are officially in an earnings contraction mode but if you look at the gray bars which is the revisions you can see that those are actually getting less bad so i think of that i think of the i think of the purple line as a second derivative to earnings and i think of of the gray bars as kind of a third derivative and so even things still, even those things are still eroding, they're eroding at, a, at an improving pace. And on the revenue side, the top line, uh, the revenues are still making new highs. Uh, and that, of course, is partly explained by inflation. Uh, but we are in a, in a dispersed global cycle. So this is the rate of change of the forward earnings by country and region. And you see the black line is the US still moving down, same as what we saw on the previous chart. Uh, uh, but you see EM doing better. You see Europe really doing much better. So this has become a desynchronized global cycle. And, of course, we know why. Because we had this staggered reopening after the pandemic lockdown. So the U.S. reopened first, and Europe, and now China. So it makes sense that these earnings numbers are not as uniform as they have been in the past. Um, so the earnings cycle does seem to be losing downward momentum and that would argue that the consensus lines with the consensus estimates which call for a reversal later this year that maybe that's plausible and you know as as we've said many times you know the market always looks ahead and it's perfectly able to look past an earnings valley uh, it's not able to look past an earnings abyss but it's able to lo- look past the valley especially if the Fed is sort of getting closer to its end, even if the Fed doesn't pivot the way the market is is expecting, even just knowing that inflation has peaked and the Fed is is done e- tightening and earnings have kind of, you have this light at the end of the tunnel, uh, you, you can put that together and see, okay, there's your bullish narrative, but then the actual on the ground data have to support that and that would come from Small caps, medium caps, micro caps. I showed you how the U.S. liquidity cycle is turning more negative, um, but the global cycle, because it is so desynchronized, actually remains pretty robust. So the 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 you know the Chinese central bank has been um, stimulating. The Bank of Japan, of course, is still defending its yield caps, so that remains a very easy policy. So this is Bloomberg's estimate of the global money supply. And that's basically at all-time highs now. And so, again, it's an important counterpoint to what we see here in the US, which where everyone is waiting for that shoe to drop and will it drop or not. But in the rest of the world, and this is obviously very important for our Canadian uh, investors, is there there are opportunities, and not just in terms of hiding in a safe place while the market goes down, but actually in a market that's going up. MSCI Europe for the first four months of this year is up 15.5%. It's not, it's not a bad result. Uh,
1: quick question. I'll just try and fit this in. This is on positioning. Um, how does Urien feel about moving away from equities and into bonds for the rest of 2023?
2: I like bonds. Uh, I don't know that. Uh, so I, I, I like a 60-40 or some variation of that approach. So, so I don't know that I would allocate out of stocks into bonds, but I but. Uh, that's not some, saying something bad about bonds. So I, I would be in bonds and stocks anyway. So for me, the bigger question is within bonds, you know, what kind of duration do I want? Uh, do I want tips or nominals, corporates or or treasuries? And then on the on the equity side, do I want to be in the U.S.? Do I want to be in large or small? Do I want to be in the rest of the world? So to me, that's kind of that second order allocation is is where it's at. But I I, I think that you know the 60 40 paradigm, which clearly did not work last year. Um, I, I'm, 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 you know, I, I don't, I think it's too early to, to call it quits on that. And I think if we do get a recession, you know, we could see two and a half percent yields on the ten-year. Uh, and so I certainly wouldn't want to be out of bonds because, we, we, you know, we could be in a recession. The question is, you know, is it fully discounted by the market? But that doesn't mean the recession can't come at some point
0: later this year.
1: Amazing to get your thoughts as always, you're in Timmer. Thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.